From the studio in Sun City, Arizona Boomer Radio presents Wealth DNA with Ron the Ronald Naraki. Wealth DNA gives you insights and methods for increasing your net worth. Ron's experience dealing with local and international markets give him insights that can be valuable to any investor. Now here's the host of the show, Ron Naraki. Hello and welcome to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. As always, we're honored that you're joining us today. If you don't gain some new knowledge during this hour, we have a double-your-money-back guarantee. Yep, we'll refund double what you paid to listen. Now, regardless of whether you're in Canada, Europe, the U.S., you're tuning in to the live show or listening to the archive, I'm confident you will be glad you joined us. Now, I have a feeling this show will also influence your New Year's resolution, so if you haven't written them down yet, or if you've already forgotten what they were then get a pad and pencil uh, or maybe your electronic device to take some notes. And speaking of resolutions, it reminds me of a cute cartoon I saw recently. Two animals, and I don't recall the type of animal, whether they were birds or, or dogs or whatever, were sitting together and the younger one asked the wiser one, what is a New Year's resolution? The wiser one simply says, it's a to-do list for the first two weeks of January. Now, I certainly hope that's not the way you see New Year's resolutions, although many people do, and I noticed the fitness facility that I go to seemed a lot emptier on Friday than it did a few weeks ago. Now, several times I've mentioned the financial holy grail, which I define as income for life. That's the goal of getting an education, working hard, saving, and investing wisely to build a portfolio that provides us income for life, the holy grail. Today, I'll be asking our guest for his advice on various aspects of achieving that holy grail. Now, if you're well on your way to becoming wealthy or you've reached the financial holy grail, this show will provide you some great reminders of what you're doing right and 95% of the population is doing wrong. Or more, more likely, they're just not doing or only doing it for a few weeks in the beginning of January. Now, our guest today will help us understand why being rich is a state of mind which just happens to be the name of the book on personal finance he wrote. Great book, by the way. We have a tradition of using a quote to set the stage for the topic, and I'd like to share two quotes for today's show that I feel are appropriate. First, if we command our wealth, we shall be rich and free. If our wealth commands us, we are poor indeed. Let me repeat that. If we command our wealth, we shall be rich and free. If our wealth commands us. We are poor indeed. That quote is from Edmund Burke. Now the second quote, a very short one, common sense is not so common. That quote is from Voltaire. Let me repeat it one more time. Common sense is not so common. And I think you're going to find those very useful today. Today is Monday, January 26th in uh, 2015. It's a new year. It's 9.03 a.m. here in Arizona, 11.03 a.m. in Ontario, Canada and the U.S. East Coast, and 1703 in continental Europe. It's the only day ever like it. We'll do everything possible to make it a great one. You're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. The show airs every second and fourth Monday at 9 a.m. in Arizona. Now, I certainly hope you can join us each time we air, but if you miss some shows like the early ones that we had on, uh, let's say, our series on financial literacy, or we'll talk a little bit about OPM several years ago, a series we did on other people's money, not the drug, you might want to re-listen to them. You can find them on the archive. Just go to wealthdna.us, where we list each of the shows, both upcoming and archived. Today, our sponsor is BI Solutions Corp., a residential real estate fund in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area. Now, the U.S. equity markets, which have gone nowhere for the last two weeks, but they've taken a very bumpy road to get there, are now off to a negative, no, change that to a slightly positive start. Asia Asia was mixed overnight. Europe is now positive as well, and Brazil is down. Now, the advantage of joining us for the live show is you get to ask questions or make comments, either using the chat window below the radio player or calling in. But if you're listening to the archive, neither of those options will work. Trust me on that. On the other hand, if you listen to the archive of the show, especially 10 or 20 years in the future, you'll have some history to see how what you hear on this show would have impacted your wealth accumulation had you listened live. Our special guest to discuss rich is a state of mind is Robert Jinyak. 
author and best-selling book of the best-selling book with that exact same title, Rich is a State of Mind. He's a public speaker and owner of Tanak and Associates. He advises financial advisors on developing better relationships with clients, and he advises investors to take full advantage of financial advisors. Let's take a let's uh, give a warm radio welcome to Robert Jinyak. Welcome Robert and thank you for joining us today. Good morning Ron, it's a pleasure to be with you. And I sure hope I'm going to get your name pronounced right because I know there are a couple variations but I'm hoping I'm getting closer as we go. That's perfect. No no problems oh. at all with the pronunciation. Okay, but we we will make sure that people know how to spell it later on in the show, just to make sure it's it's an unusual spelling. Now, I gave a brief overview of your background. How do you introduce yourself? Let's say you're at a cocktail party. I'd probably open with I'm an accidental best-selling author who wrote a <laughs> book on personal finance for North Americans, and I speak to financial professionals and their clients across North America. I like that an accidental best-selling author. Somehow, things are not. There are no such accidents. But uh, anyway, nor coincidences. Things happen because we make them happen. But uh, your book about personal finance investing is is indeed unusual. It's it's written as a novel. Would you tell our listeners how that story actually begins? The story opens with the setting of a hospital room and the unfortunate death of who eventually becomes the main character in the book, a gentleman mm-hmm. by the name of Richard Jarvis. And the scene is painted by his best friend, John, who is the book's narrator. And yes, it's probably a little bleak uh, for an opening mm-hmm. of a book, particularly on personal finance, uh, because personal finance books tend to be dry, numbers-based, charts, graphs, textbook-type uh, books that remind us of high school math and, and college algebra. And quite frankly, that's why they scare most people away. I wanted to grab the reader with something that made them go, holy crap, what happened next? Right. Right. And I, I, you know, you definitely do that. And I guess now that I think about it, you could have people in various situations. Some would be, uh, you know, still young in their career and all of a sudden thinking, you know, thinking, well, what happened if I died? How would my family take care of themselves? Or you'd have the opposite of somebody saying, hey, uh, you know, things are going extremely well. And I've just hit that point where I could think about retiring 10 years from now and all of a sudden it's all over. Uh, so a lot of those kind of wake up calls that uh, maybe, uh, you know, having our finances in order does make sense. Uh, but it but it is a gloomy start it is and but what's interesting is from John's perspective the narrator uh, the moment that that happens uh, is we all know if we've ever experienced a death within our family or a close circle of friends it sets mm-hmm. in place a bunch of different wheels of motion towards taking care of things who has to be notified when does that happen what are the sequence of events that happen next and as John relates to the readers what those particular wheels are, we then get taken back in time to the start of the story. Mm-hmm. So in, in short, we had this critical event happen. How did we get here? And at that point, I moved the story 13 months previous to where the central characters in the book actually met for the first time. Mm-hmm. And by doing so, I think I've created a mechanism whereby the readers can actually care about the people they're reading about or simply follow them along through the narrative and go, that's exactly how I feel about things. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. with that, I can encourage them to keep reading. For me, Ron, one of the best emails I ever received about the book from a reader was very short and to the point that said, Robert, I want to thank you for writing Rich's State of Mind. It's the first book on personal finance I ever finished. Wow. No, and I and, and I think that's very true. I think a lot of people don't read books because they are kind of cut and dry. Uh, whereas books that are written stories, and we'll talk about maybe a few today, uh, you know, yours yours does uh, grab the attention. But you've also built a mystery there a little bit, uh, and, and don't spoil it for our for our listeners nor for me who I haven't I haven't finished the book yet. Uh, but you kind of created a mystery at that whole beginning that's fairly crucial to this story, correct? I did, and it, it's the very last snippets of conversation that happened between Richard and John, where Richard asked John, you will complete the project, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was, in fact, the last words he ever said. And so the concept of the project was why I had to move 13 months back in time to go, okay, what's the project? 
Mm-hmm. And over the course of the 13 months of the characters' lives and how they interconnect, it will describe what the project is and how we got there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, you mentioned a good point there just a, a minute ago, which is it does also a bit of the wake-up call, which I didn't immediately think of, if some of those documents are in order, the wills and the uh, uh, trusts in some cases, and just, you know, who has powers of attorney and all of those kinds of things. Uh, I, I completely forgot about those very, very important aspects, and we've talked about them occasionally on this show, uh, but very important aspects of financial planning. They're critical parts of the financial planning puzzle, Ron, and I think for many people, they don't think about them at all. They think personal finance, they think bank accounts, mm-hmm. mutual funds, ETFs, um, an investment property, uh, you know, everything, the, their IRA, 401K. They think about money in terms of personal finance. But some of the most critical things that help protect us in our lives are things like powers of attorney documents. Who gets to yep. act on our behalf if we cannot? And most importantly, the will. And I do spend an entire chapter in the book talking about that because if you've ever experienced someone close to you dying without a will, it Mm -hmm. is, to be honest, a nightmare for the people that get left behind. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, uh, yeah, those legal docs, including, and I'll I'll just mention another one that you didn't touch on in that list, which is things like beneficiaries on uh, some of those retirement accounts, because those can sometimes override um, uh, uh, wills and stuff so that the beneficiaries are having those intact. So some some good pointers, and it sounds like uh, another show coming up here now that I think about it. But before we dig into specifics, would you share with our listeners how they'd contact you, learn more about Rich's Estate of Mind, and learn more about you? Oh, Absolutely. They can go to the book's website, which is www.richisastateofmind. So it's the book's title spelled out, richisastateofmind.com. And you can find sample chapters. You can read some reviews of the book. There's video clips of me speaking at events across North America. You can ask me a question if you like by clicking on the contact me link, or you can send me an email at robert at richisastateofmind.com. Right. Okay. Very good. And uh, just for those people that want to do a little um, searching while we're talking, the spelling of Robert's last name is G-I-G-N-A-C. Okay, so that's uh, that's the proper spelling. Uh, now, you're, you're Canadian, eh? And as I understand, you actually have two editions, the Canadian version, which has uh, tens of thousands of copies in print, and you're probably on your way to 100,000 by the end of the year, uh, and a U.S. version, which I assume that U.S. version is a little bit newer, correct? U.S. version is a little bit newer. The first edition of the Canadian book came out in 2005. It's currently in okay. its third edition, 15th printing. And, yeah, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that I, I can hit the six-figure uh, by the end of the year. I'm certainly working on it. Um, the U.S. edition came out in 2011. It's in its second printing. Uh, we're closing in uh, roughly 5,000 copies sold. It's no record by, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, Dan Brown and J.K. Rowling aren't losing sleep over my book sales. <laughs> but I, I'm hoping it resonates with your listeners, and it certainly does with the audiences that I speak to across the country. Well, and I think your earlier statement that it's one of the few finance books that uh, people finish because it is written in a story and a powerful way to write books. So, uh, you know, commend you on that. Now, many people outside the uh, outside of Canada, I should say, assume Canadians are very similar to their U.S. counterparts. I actually learned something very interesting from you that there are really some big differences, not just subtle differences uh, in, in investing and taxation. The one that surprised me the most, just because I thought I knew the these things is that mortgages are not tax deductible in Canada. Has that always been the case? That has always been the case, Ron. And it is something that, uh, to be honest, we envy you. <laughs> we okay. envy you to be able to write off your mortgage interest as a tax deduction. Now, mm-hmm. that said, that applies only to your principal residence. That is correct. To your, to your live-in house. Mm-hmm. If, in fact, you were to buy a income property, rental property, and mm-hmm. you're using it to generate income, you can write off the mortgage interest on the rental property, but not on your principal residence. Okay. 
So basically, when you're running a business, which a rental property is, uh, it's treated as a business, and it's just the individual that can't uh, can't deduct it. But okay, good. I, I, again, a big surprise, especially since I spent a lot of time in Toronto many years ago, uh, both projects and, and vacationing, and I have relatives there. And I was always surprised how high housing prices were versus similar large cities in the U.S. Uh, and, and at that time, I didn't realize mortgages weren't deductible. I would think that you know non-deductible mortgages would actually negatively impact housing prices. What are your thoughts on that? Well, to be honest, Ron, I at the end of the day, you have to live somewhere. Mm-hmm. And we always make a conscious decision, and I'm sure you talk to your listeners about this, is do you rent or do you own? Mm-hmm. And if you choose to own... And if the mortgage isn't tax deductible, that's probably not going to make you want to rent anymore if, in fact, you aspire to be a homeowner and build equity and and build a house and a place to live. Mm -hmm. Now, Toronto is a little unique um, in terms of Canada's housing market. As you know, we're we're much smaller than you are. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're 10% of the U.S. population spread thinly across the the U.S. and Canadian border. And once you get outside of Toronto, Vancouver, Calgary, and Montreal, um, that's the bulk of the Canadian population in those four cities. Mm -hmm. So in the urban centers like that, you will see housing spike up a fair bit, Uh, not unlike you do in New York, Chicago, L.A., Dallas, Um, And, in fact, in Arizona, where you're at, which is kind of a hot spot in the real estate area. Um, And many of us Canadians aspire to spend some time down in your part of the country during the winter. (laughs) It's a great time to be here. When you're in the the prairies of Canada, the middle parts of the East Coast, housing prices are, I'd say, 35 to 40 percent lower than they are in the four big GTA Mm -hmm. uh, metropolitan areas of Canada. Okay, so if I go to Yellowknife, uh, I won't be paying as high as I will be in Toronto. Understood. Absolutely not. You'll you'll be spending the difference in firewood, snowmobile suits, um, and ways to keep warm. And a lot of um, uh, fuel to get me up there. Absolutely. Uh, long, long way, way north, and, and there's good reason why the population's all on the southern edge. Now, so if I have sufficient cash to buy a home, and again, we're talking a home, invest, not investment property in Canada, but decide that, you know, that 5% mortgage is cheap, and I won't use my cash, and I'm going to take that money that I, I took the mortgage uh, instead of using my own, I invested at 6 and a half. Now, just, I'm implying here that I'm not just taxed on the spread, like in the U.S., a, a homeowner would be taxed on the spread. They get to deduct the five percent, and they they pay tax on the six and a half. So in essence, they're paying on on the one and a half. Uh, in essence, in Canada, I'd be paying taxes on the full six and a half percent I earned on that investment. The simple answer to that question is yes, mm-hmm. okay. but it can be more complex because it depends in a little bit about the type of income you're earning. So, for example, if let's say it was in an interest-bearing account. A certificate mm-hmm. of deposit, as you were, or a money market account. Okay. Uh, in Canada, it's taxed at what they call pure interest, and you would pay tax on the full 6.5%. There's mm-hmm. no deduction for what you could have done with the money. Mm-hmm. If, however, you invested in a blue-chip stock and your return was in dividends from the corporation, dividends are taxed differently. Dividends are only taxed at 66% of the amount you received, If, in fact, the investment you chose paid you back in capital gain versus dividend versus interest, then only 50% of the capital gain is taxed, not the entire amount. Okay. All right. Different, different, different approach. Same, same ideas as many of the other tax systems. So, one of the things I guess I should step back and say, if if some of the Canadians listen to our series on OPM, and again, I mean other people's money, not the drug, that we did several years ago, they need to factor in that some of my advice to take advantage of those uh, cheap mortgages is not quite as relevant in Canada as it is in the U.S. and many other parts of the world. Um, thoughts on that? I think Canadians on the whole run uh, do use other people's money, mm-hmm. and they use it for investment properties. There are certain opportunities to borrow to invest here, um, whether it be in a, a stock or mutual fund portfolio, and write off the interest for that because it is mm-hmm. an investment expense. Um, it is you know, one of a, f- a few ways of generating 
uh, tax relief up here in Canada. Uh, we don't have the myriad of deductions that you've got in the U.S. that, that many of us look south and go, man, I wish we could do that. <laughs> um, but in today's environment, uh, certainly the last say, 10 to 12 weeks have kind of been a bit of a game changer up here in Canada. Um, oil prices have plummeted. The Canadian yes. economy uh, relies to a great extent on oil and gas. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's mineral-based economy, particularly out west and out in the province of Alberta. Um, it's caused the Canadian dollar to shift downward on world markets, which isn't helping. Um, a major Canadian corporation, of which I know you're aware, Target Corporation, um, yes, it decided to shelve its Canadian project. They're closing all of the 183 stores that they opened only two years ago and are pulling out of the Canadian market, mm-hmm. which will leave about 17,000 Canadians out of work over the next five months. So, yeah, it, no, and there's very definitely definitely causes some grief. Absolutely, it's uh, you know there's going to be some, you know the the old fortune cookie says may you live in interesting times. And, and, and I think what's happening in the marketplace now um, is going to see things in the mortgage marketplace have a little bit of effect. For for example, the mm-hmm. Bank of Canada, who up here controls our uh, country's prime lending rate and pretty much anything else to do with money, dropped their lending rate by a quarter percent last Thursday and took the Canadian market by surprise absolutely completely. Mm-hmm. Nobody was expecting that. If anything, they were expecting the prime rate to rise, and it actually went down. And so now you're seeing uh, one-year variable rate mortgages at under 3% here in Canada. Wow. And it's not a bad way to borrow money to invest when you can get money at under 3%. You bet. Now, if you listen to our sh- last show, our, our guest is predicting precious metals will shoot up uh, dramatically in the next few years, so that could offset some of that uh, pain in Canada, because you obviously are very heavily dependent on that, and a lot of a lot of uh, gold mining companies, gold and silver, precious, any precious metal gold, uh, mining companies are actually headquartered in Canada, so hopefully that has some offsetting effect for you guys. We're certainly hoping that, and, uh, you know, is is with anything when it happens on an economic level, if you can kind of stay level-headed and get past the emotion of it, um, I think the phrase, this too shall pass, is usually appropriate. Um, But as as you also know, when you're up to your butt in alligators, it's hard to understand that the main goal was to clear the swamp. (laughs) Absolutely well said. Let me remind our listeners, you're tuned to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. I look forward to you joining us every second and fourth Monday. Our sponsor today is BI Solutions Corp., a real estate fund in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area. Now, if you missed some of the prior shows, you want to re-listen to them, we maintain archive of shows on www.wealthdna.com. US. If you'd like to get an email reminder of the show, send an email to me, ron at wealthdna.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events. And reminder, during the show, we welcome you, our listeners, to ask questions or make comments. Easiest is to start a chat down and below the radio player. There's a little chat window where you can actually type in a message, or you can call in 917-388-4162, also shown at the top of the screen. Our topic today is Rich is a State of Mind, and our guest is Robert Giniak, the uh, author of the best-selling book with that title, a public speaker and owner of Tanak & Associates. Now, Robert, you're less a fan of using debt than I am. Can you share your perspective on debt with our listeners? I think debt can be a useful thing. It can also be a very dangerous thing. For for the uninitiated or those with very little self-discipline, it can be like handling a really sharp knife that's sharp on both both edges. There is, in fact, I guess in the book I refer to it as good debt, and mm-hmm. that would be debt that you assume in order to grow something i.e. invest in your business, invest in a business, invest in a rental property, where the goal of that debt is to generate additional income for yourself, for your family, much longer-term perspective. What I call the bad debt is is what we'd all refer to as, as dumb debt, consumer debt, the, you know, having having to buy something today just because, well, I've, I've got to have it. Everybody else has got one. All my friends have one of those. Well, you don't have the money to do it. I know, but I've got this cool little card in my pocket. When I pull it out, I get stuff. And you do. 
and you get stuff, and 27 days later you get a nice bill in the mail asking you to pay for the stuff. Now, part of that problem, Ron, is they don't ask you to pay for it in full. They're more than happy to say, here's your minimum payment for the. If you just send us this minimum payment, we're happy to continue to fund your lifestyle. And mm-hmm. when that happens over a long period of time, it's how people dig themselves seemingly insurmountable holes with credit card debt. And I would view that as certainly a bad use of debt. Correct. You know, it's interesting, but the reason I wanted to ask you is I think the headlines might be different that we use, uh, but quite frankly, our philosophies are exactly the same. Uh, People with good financial discipline using debt well can make money. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, listeners just entered a comment uh, as a Canadian. uh, When you do take out that that mortgage on your uh, principal residence, and then the money that you didn't put into your house uh, you actually do invest and you start uh, borrowing to invest on investment properties, uh, that basically does become tax deductible. So uh, depending, as you said, depending on which uh, which type of uh, property the uh, that debt is, uh, it does allow you to free up cash flow and deduct it at the same time as long as you make sure that debt is allocated to the investment properties. So uh, exactly right. And there again is a, a wise use of debt where you can deduct it as opposed to one where you can't. Uh, and knowing the difference and, and dealing with them accordingly. So uh, good good comment there. Now, I often say that people are either DIY, do-it-yourself type investors like me, or they outsource the manage of their money totally. From your experience, would you say the percentage of DIY investors is different in Canada than the U.S.? To be honest, Ron, I think the numbers are fairly similar. and. Okay. I often go off out and look for numbers like this and before I go out and speak to organizations or their clients. Mm-hmm. And the latest numbers that I saw, and this is going back to maybe late November, early December of 2014, so not that long mm-hmm. ago, was that only 40 to 45% of Canadians actively work with a financial professional. Okay. And, of course, they've lumped into that you know, stockbroker, mutual fund salesperson, uh, insurance agent, Um, all-encompassing financial planner, uh, fee-for-service financial planner. They've lumped everybody in there. But if if 40 to 45% are the people who do use it, then by default, and I'm not a numbers guy, trust me, that would mean that that 50 to 55% aren't using them. Um, And my guess is, from the numbers I see coming out of the U.S., that's pretty consistent, but I'm open to, to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, and I, I, I don't have the statistics on it. My sense is that more people in the U.S. do outsource it. I think they're a little bit less uh, frugal or think about the cost. Or they, the, you know, the costs are so hidden in the commissions, they think that using a financial advisor doesn't cost them anything. Uh, so I think there's a tendency to say, well, I don't know anything about finance. I, I'm just going to go ahead and you know get a financial advisor to handle it. It doesn't cost me anything. So I sense that Americans are a little bit more uh, cavalier and uh, go ahead and outsource it without having thought through the numbers or without thought th- thinking through the, uh, the the cost of doing that, or taking the time to learn this stuff. Quite frankly, so I, I I would tend to think that the numbers might be you know kind of closer to the opposite, where it might be 60% uh, outsource it, and uh, you know the 40% are either DIY or just flat out don't invest. <laughs> it's always that punch as well. Thank so uh, I, I would that's just my guesstimate. An interesting point to note, Ron. I think. Women do this better than we do as men because, Rub it in. quite frankly, they're willing to seek out help for things where they do not feel that they're proficient. Whereas guys, we tend to think, I can figure out anything. And the example I often use in my presentations is talk to one of your buddies about you know investing and money and how are they doing and what's their plan – Oh, I don't use financial professional. So you do everything Mm -hmm. yourself. Yes. But wait a second. Didn't last year you hired a swing coach to help Mm -hmm. you with your golf game? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how'd that work for you? It worked great. You know, it was high 80s, low 90s. Now I'm low 80s, break into the 70s every once in a while. So let me get this right. You hired somebody to help you play a game that doesn't make you any money, Mm -hmm. but you don't have the time to sit down and work with a professional to help make sure that 15 years down the road you could play all the golf you ever wanted and never have to worry about how to pay for it. 
Yeah, and, well said, and the, good example. And the response is always kind of like, I don't like you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm, will, I'm willing to live with that, to be honest, Ron, just because, you, got you know, thinking. We'll, we'll outsource all kinds of stuff, but money is that kind of mystery emotional thing within most of us that if somehow we can't handle with it or deal with it ourselves, we somehow feel inferior. Hmm. Interesting, interesting point. And and actually, you're kind of triggering a, a, a question in my mind. Let's go back a few years before you actually wrote the book. Something inspired that. Uh, you know, what was the timing you got started? You mentioned 2005 was the, the release of the Canadian version. But what was the inspiration and, and what drove you to that wonderful title that you chose? I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got this thing started. So if I go back in the day to around circa 2002, 2003, mm-hmm. I found myself answering the same question over and over and over among many of my peer group. And that question was, how did you get so lucky? And I always kind of looked at them and I'm going, what are you talking about? Well, you're lucky. I'm, I'm lucky what? And so one day I was sitting down with my financial advisor and I said, I've got a question for you. I said, Mike, how did I get so lucky? He said, what are you talking about? I said, that's all I've heard for like six months. Every time I you know, sit down, oh, you got lucky. How did you get so lucky? How did you get so lucky? He said, oh. He said, I know what they're talking about. And I, I said, do tell. He said, here's something I learned a long time ago. When you're doing things in your life that everybody else says they want to but aren't, right. you got lucky. Right. And I, well I said, said, but why, you know, I said, but I, I don't make some six figure income. I, I did, no, nobody died, left me any money. I'm not some kind of super investor. I'm plodding along like every other Canadian. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you're actually not. He said, because when I met you a decade ago, he said, quite frankly, I had to twist your arm to get you to save 50 bucks a month because you thought having a CD collection was important. He said, now here we are. He said, we're over a decade into it. He said, you got downsized out of your job four months ago. You took a couple months off, did some traveling. He said, didn't worry about how you were going to pay for it. He said, and here we are. You're back at work now. He said, you're, you're getting to do things that were on the goal list that we set 10 years ago. And he said, that's why you got lucky. He said, because you're willing to do stuff the other people aren't willing to do. He said, so here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to write a book about it. Wow. And I laughed. I said, you've got to be kidding me. He said, no, no, no. He said, you're a good writer. And I was doing some writing for a technical trade journal for a software company I worked for. Mm-hmm. He said, I know you know how to write. He said, you just need to create a story. And wow. about 18 months later, and, and I don't know how many reams of paper through the shredder, um, <laughs> I created what was then the basis for the book. Then I had to come up with a title, as mm-hmm. you suggested, so I went out to about 500 people. I exhausted my email contacts at the time. I said, please answer this question for me. What is rich? Ah. And I got back a couple hundred responses. Okay. And of the three, there were, or of those responses, there were only three that said rich is one comma seven eight two comma something. Everybody else told me how they would feel what their life would look like, who they'd spend their time with, what they'd be doing if they ever answered the question, I'm rich, with a yes. Mm -hmm. And it was based upon those responses that I was just kind of sitting back, and I said, it's almost like people think rich is a state of mind. Mm -hmm. And I went, holy crap, (laughs) I got it. That's it. That's the title of the book. Great story. Great story. I really, I really like that. And and you know, you know, kudos to your to your financial advisor on that. And, and just to clarify for our listeners, you are you yourself are not a financial advisor. So as you were touching on, your book wasn't written as PR to drive, uh, attract, or drive or attract uh, investor clients to you. Correct? No, absolutely not, Ron. I've I've never worked in the financial services industry. I've never worked for a bank, mutual fund company, insurance company. I've only ever been a client of the industry. Mm-hmm. And with mm-hmm. that, I crafted the book so that potential clients or existing clients would 
come to a better understanding of building a better relationship with money, not being afraid to work with somebody in order to earn more of it or keep more of what you've got. And at the end of the day, I, I'm not passionate enough about numbers and data and stocks and indices to really follow that kind of stuff. I'm passionate about a lot of things in my life, but not that. And so, as you said, that's why I outsourced it. And if I can help educate people about that process, and even if they choose not to outsource it, make better financial decisions for themselves, then I'm a happy guy. Okay. Now, you have, to some extent, though, created, since that book has been written, in essence, it has shifted your core business a little bit, hasn't it? It has, because I I learned a lot of things about the the book publishing business and and writing books. I learned that, surprisingly, they don't sell themselves. That You have to actually go out and promote your book. And so you'd go out and you'd do book signings and you'd go to bookstores and you'd go to libraries and then people would say, well, can you do a short presentation? Mm-hmm. Um, so then you started doing presentations and then financial companies said, I really like your book. I'd like to buy a hundred of them and give away. Can you come in and talk to our clients? Mm-hmm. And from there, um, I don't want to say things spun out of control, but they certainly changed the direction that I, I had set for myself. This was kind of, you know, I thought it'd be an interesting project is, is a bigger part. And now it's kind of become the sum total of what I do for a living back to there are no accidents see that now as i recall you say that rich is not just about having money what does rich really mean to you for me it's in the line i use in the book in terms of richard um Mm -hmm. i kind of aspire to be the central character in the book i'm not that wise Mm -hmm. yet but i'm working on it and the the concept of, of rich is the concept of freedom Now, the two younger characters in the book, James and Joyce, who are in their 20s, immediately respond with freedom from what? Mm. Because, well, because they they haven't acquired the knowledge yet. And it's not freedom from, it's freedom to. There you go. Freedom to make decisions about your life, to spend time with the people you want to spend time with, to generate life experiences for yourself. For some people, it'll be the pursuit of material goods, and I have no problem with that. For me, I'm more of an experiential person. I'd rather sit inside the mountain and watch the sun come up uh, than I would to be driving a big fancy car. Uh, but to that, and but for that, I, I'm all for anybody pursuing those goals. Well done. Well done. And, you know, the great connection, by the way, between the term rich and, of course, Richard, uh, the name. So uh, whenever I meet somebody named uh, Richard, uh, I, I try to remind them that uh, they're probably, uh, they have some, uh, you know, karma around their names, so they should take full advantage of that. Uh, I'm sure many of the readers, when they pick up your book, buy your book, start reading through it, they're looking for that one pearl of wisdom uh, that they need to do to build their wealth. What's your response to them? When people ask me for the one big thing, mm-hmm. um, to be honest, Ron, I always tell them the same thing. I say, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I really don't know. Okay. I don't know what the one big thing is. I mm-hmm. could give you a laundry list of little things. But then one day I distilled it down to this, and I've been sharing it with audiences for a long time. And here's your one big thing. Stop buying crap you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you neither like or know. Wow. And if you can do that, you're probably well on your way to having a successful relationship with money. And both answers are good. It's not one thing. It's lots of little things and the discipline to stick with them. So, uh, you know, kudos on that. Complete this phrase for me. Money can't buy happiness, but... That's a good line. Money can't buy happiness, but... Mm -hmm. I'd probably complete it... Money can't buy happiness, but it sure makes wherever you are a little more comfortable. 
There you go. Very, very good one. Uh, I had been working on this for a little while and, and finally came up with money can't buy happiness, but neither can poverty. Turns out Leo Rostin already coined that phrase before me, but that's that's one of the endings. And then in that research, by the way, just double checking, I wasn't tripping on somebody's quote. I actually found a few more that I'll share with you. I thought you'd sure. enjoy and may be able to take advantage of, and they're right along the lines of your touching on. Money is the sixth sense that makes it possible to enjoy the other five, and that was Richard okay. May. And uh, so that one is, in essence, really following exactly what you're saying there. Uh, yours is a little catchier. And finally, you'll get a kick out of this one. Uh, you, if you don't recognize the name, I'll share where the name comes from. Whoever said money can't buy happiness simply didn't know where to go shopping. That comes from Bo Derek. <laughs> and she was, by the way, the star of the movie Ten. In case you don't recognize that name, or some there, of our listeners don't. So, well, I, I, the, my, I suspect you and I are in the same age demographic, or very, very yes. close. And so, yes, I ab- absolutely recognize the reference to to those of your listeners under the age of twenty five. Um, they're probably going to have to jump onto Google um, right. in order to do that. There is, is something viable. I will share about the. Sure. The money doesn't bring happiness phase because I often I, I do this in presentations and I put up a on the s- screen a picture of money mm-hmm. and just you know random bills and this applies to both U.S. and Canada and the line is when I'm looking at the money talking about emotion and how it affects people I say you know everybody wants to know if money will make you happy mm-hmm. I said but look at this stuff if money was supposed to make us happy. Wouldn't they have put better-looking people on the stuff? <laughs> you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're looking at, at American bills or Canadian bills. You've got a bunch of, of sour-faced old people, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. on it, yet holding this stuff in our hands or in our wallets is somehow supposed to make us happy. There you, you know, go. They'd put smiling, attractive people on it so that we'd want to hold more of it. But that's, that's just a quick aside. There you go. I like that. And, and now the U.S. part of our excuse is all the people on the on the money are dead anyway. So uh, you know they weren't they weren't very happy once they're dead. So I guess uh, that that has a message in there as well. Uh, would you be willing to share with our listeners some good New Year's resolutions if I prompt you with the type of listener that we want to address? I'll do my best. Okay, let's start with the person who barely has even a hundred dollars uh, saved and is struggling to pay their monthly minimums on their credit cards. What would you say they should make as a uh, resolution? For me, the one thing I, I would strive to encourage them to do is to make sure they add no more to the existing credit card statement, mm-hmm. and to make sure that. They never get themselves in a position where they miss the monthly minimum because the penalties are, um, I don't want to say obscene, um, but they're bordering on that uh, for when that happens. Okay. And paying more than the minimum is definitely the interest rates you're getting killed on. Basically, you're paying huge amounts. Absolutely the the case where where people, sometimes people will balk at, you know, well, I, I can't make any money on on my CD savings because it's only paying a percent and a quarter interest, yet they're carrying mm-hmm. $1,500 on their credit card at 28%, but that doesn't bother them at all. Right, right. Well, so well, well you know, it's, a, it's a matter of perspective. Yes, best investment uh, and fully guaranteed is to pay off your credit card. And uh, that's always my uh, my number one advice to people who uh, who say, what's my best investment? That's the, that's the absolute first. Okay, so let's say somebody that has accomplished, they've got most of their, their debt either paid down or, or uh, well on their way. Uh, what would you suggest for them? What would be the New Year's resolution for the person that's gotten that under control? So, so in this case, Ron, just to be clear, they're not mm-hmm. they're not carrying any credit card debt. They're or very little. They've, they're, they've, they're, they're making ends meet. And yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then I think the the resolution that I would encourage them on is to set a series of goals for themselves that look out over the next two to five years for where they would like to see themselves financially. They're they're doing the right things. They're you know. They're not living on their credit cards. They're they're paying down the minimums, or or I guess now the term is revolving credit. They're not uh, not incurring interest charges, uh, but maybe they're just not managing to accumulate. Right. And so I think a, a two to five year plan 
with some very basic goals about the amount of money they'd like to save, the amount of debt they'd like to re- reduce, particularly if, if they see home ownership in their future, um, or maybe it is there and they want to try to generate some uh, additional, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, free space in their, mm-hmm. in their money. They, they want to be more comfortable than they are now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, so we get those goals in place. All right. I've, let's say I've done that. Let's say I've, I've gone through that for a few years. I've gotten my credit uh, paid down. I've set some goals in place. Uh, what should I do this year as my New Year's resolution if that were the case? I, have, I still don't have a lot saved, uh, but at least I you know, kind of know what I want to start saving for. What, what's my goal this year? I would, if they're in that point, the first thing I would do when they get to that point is make sure that they've got adequate protections in place for the money they do have. And those protections we touched upon briefly earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Insurance, wills, powers of attorney. Because the, the inevitable and unfortunate part is we're all going to go at some point. We just don't know when. And when those documents are taken care of, I think people sleep a lot better at night, knowing that if something were to happen, everything is taken in place. And for those people who are already doing a great job at achieving the holy grail that you talked about, legacy becomes an issue. Okay. How do they want to be remembered for what they've done? And that's a great time to set some goals about addressing that. Okay, well, well done. So you jump to my my other one, which is somebody further ahead. But let me remind our listeners, especially those that just tuned in, you're listening to the Wealth DNA Radio Show. I'm your host, Ron Naraki. Now, if you missed earlier part of the show, you can listen for that on the archive, and that's where you'll also find prior shows, wealthdna.us. Today, our guest is Robert Jignac. Our topic is Rich is a State of Mind. Robert is a motivational speaker, best-selling author of the book titled Rich is a State of Mind. Richard, uh, I'd like to to, to lean in and, and talk about some of the common sense advice uh, and tips that you mention in the book and kind of your philosophy on a number of things. Would it be okay if I threw out a few samples of words and you gave us uh, your philosophy? I'll do my best. Okay, small rewards. The ability to, as we go through the process of, of in many cases, changing our financial behavior We often view personal finance as we view dieting. It's all about pain and can't have. Mm -hmm. And if we do that with money, we won't be effective with those strategies for very long. So the ability to take a small reward, which is, you know, go have a triple mocha, frappa, latte, something or other, Mm -hmm. uh, if that is your thing. And it's a cool thing because maybe part of that is in order to get your spending out of control, you were having five a week. And now every financial advisor under the sun says, you can't have five weeks. As a matter of fact, you can't have any. Well, the problem is if you do that, you're going to turn them off to the prod. They'll do it for a week, and then they go, ah, this doesn't work. And then they'll go back to having five. But if you let them have one, that little victory about, I did good this week. And because if you don't reward yourself in the process, continually going, I'll reward myself five years from now, man, five years is a long time. Okay. Time is money. Time is money for me relates to the fact that having very little to do with money in dollars and cents, it's the currency that we have that we get to use every day. And what Mm -hmm. do we do with our time? We can invest our time in things. We can spend it on relaxation and leisure. But time is money as a currency We get 24 hours of it every day. We get to spend it however we want. And at the end of the day, we don't get any of it back. You can't move it forward to tomorrow. Good point. It will be spent one way or another. That's how we spend it. How about the eighth wonder of the world? Easy one. Compound interest. And I didn't invent this. And uh, it's attributed to Einstein a lot. But I actually think it goes further back than him to some guy named Baron de Rothschilds back in the 1700s. And it has to do with, as your listeners no doubt know, 
the ability to earn interest on an investment, start with 1,000, get 10%, you've got 1,100, then you earn another 10%, not just on the original amount, but on, mm-hmm. the, on the extra 100 as well. So your money starts to compound and grow. And for young listeners, it's the biggest asset you'll ever have because the earlier you start, the more time you've got. All right, that, that, that leads me to, to an obvious connection. Develop good habits early, a phrase you've said. We often develop good habits too late. And so the the concept of developing good habits early applies to almost everything we do in our lives, Ron, from financial habits of not spending less than we earn, paying ourselves first, putting it away in an account that isn't linked to our debit card so we can't get at it on Saturday night when we're out with our friends, to diet, exercise, uh, reading to increase our knowledge base, uh, not watching 45 hours of Seinfeld reruns a week. Um, anything that we can do to, A, generate a little bit more knowledge for ourselves and help ourselves out on a physical level to make sure that we take care of our body, I think, is a very good habit to develop early. Okay, a couple more. A retirement account is like a factory. Retirement accounts are like a factory because we bring in raw materials. And those raw materials that we bring into a retirement account are, obviously, cash, money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, If we've got some investments already, if we have some certificates of deposits or some stocks or some mutual funds, inside of this retirement account factory, we can change them. We can decide not to invest in certain things, transform one account into a different type of account, mix two accounts together. And what we get at the end of the day, many years down the road, is a completed product that for ourselves, hopefully, is the lifestyle that we want to achieve based upon the money that's coming out of the factory that we're getting to live off of. I like that analogy. I'm going to use that a little bit more. I will attribute it appropriately. Let me throw out one more. Risk is more than a four-letter word. This is one of yours. Risk is one of the things I think all investors say they can tolerate until it actually happens. Mm -hmm. So, for example... Uh, we're not too far removed from the from the downturn of 08, 09, and people walking away from their houses in both the U.S. and Canada, and, and retirement accounts dropped in some cases by 35, 40, 45 uh, percent. People saw retirement savings disappear, companies' pension plans blew up. We all think that we can handle risk, and the, the problem with risk is that you don't know how much you can handle until it's there, and when you're there, it's too late to determine you can't handle any. So whenever somebody tells me, you know, I'm, I'm a moderate risk investor, and I say, if you had $10,000 and you woke up tomorrow and you had $5,000, how would you feel? And they go, I, I couldn't sleep. I'd feel sick to my stomach. I said, then you're not a moderate risk investor. Right. And, okay. oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, these are great examples of, of common sense advice. So I want to go back and paraphrase for those people that missed it, Voltaire's um, quote, uh, common sense is not as common anymore. And a great book to be, to, to be reading. Uh, let me um, also uh, jump to another aspect, which I know is important to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, occasionally I'll joke that people uh, plan and God laughs. Why should we plan? and not just assume that what will be, will be. I think planning, Ron, has the ability to make us feel a little bit in control. If we don't have a plan that we're growing, making changes, accomplishing things on our goal list, then in short, we're just kind of existing. And there are some people, I'll admit, they're happy to do that. And if that's working for them, great. Wouldn't work for me. The ability to have goals in front of me, something to strive towards, something that I'm working towards, something that I can feel a sense of accomplishment when I take that black magic marker and put that line through it. And the fact that what is interesting is 
it's almost like exercise. You mentioned earlier you were at the gym on Friday, and mm-hmm. the gym was half full from where it was two Fridays ago. Correct. Why? Because they've already lost the plot. Mm-hmm. They, they thought that by the end of January, they were going to drop the 16 pounds again over December. And, you know, instead of, of wearing the 38-size jean, they were going to be down to a 34. And their life was going to be different all in four weeks. And that's why I think using the, the concept of long-term goal setting is very, very important because without that plan ahead of us, uh, you know, you might as well, you know, put the little boat in the water and, and push it around and the waves will push it wherever it wants to go. It's always nicer to be the captain of your own ship. Mm-hmm. And I'll add to that, uh, you can't manage what you don't measure uh, and we actually did a show on that many, many years ago, uh, which I think is an important one that each of us should be tracking how we're doing. Uh, you know, what assets do we have? And I, I would add that to everybody's New Year's resolutions. If they don't do that regularly, uh, twice a year is the, the amount I suggest. I think quarterly is too much, monthly is too much. So, you know, there's an example with the weight. If, if uh, you gave up after two weeks, then obviously you don't know how you're going to be six months from now. So, uh, you know, if you tracked it and you just set your goal that every six months I'm going to see how I'm doing financially, uh, it, it changes. And you start then putting your goal into real life, uh, seeing it in front of you. I think that's a great way to do it, and, and encouraging people to do a twice-a-year review. It doesn't have to take hours. It really no. doesn't. And and you don't need any special kind of software. You can do it on an Excel spreadsheet. You can do it on a exactly. piece of paper with uh, with pen and, and or pencil if you're so inclined. It mm-hmm. doesn't have to be fancy. And the fancier you try to make it, the less likely you are to do it. Agreed with that, totally. Now, you've drawn an analogy of financial planning in a football game what do you mean by that? Well, you're we're a week away from the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. and which is going to be right in your backyard. Absolutely. So the, the, con- the concept of a football game in financial planning is kind of this. There's four quarters. And if you viewed the quarters as, um, say, 20 to 35, 35 to 50, 50 to 65, 65 to 80, and overtime. So in the first couple of quarters of the game, we're younger. We're trying mm-hmm. to sort out, as the game starts, teams, offense and defense kind of feel each other out. What plays do they have? What kind of game is this going to be? Is it going to be an all-offense, all-defense? That's what we do with our own lives when we're younger. We go to university. We graduate. We get jobs. We start a career. Maybe it's not the right career. We change jobs. We go back get some more education. We move around a little bit. We get married. We have children. We get older. We move from Q1 to Q2. You can make If you make some mistakes in Q1, that's okay. You've got three quarters left. If you make some mistakes in Q2, that's okay. Halftime's coming up. We're going to get to take a little breather. What do we do mm-hmm. right in the first part? What do we need to do in the second part? And as we progress through that, when we get into Q4, the, the 60 to 75, now we're having to make critical decisions. It's often late in the game, and some of the plays we make are more important now. It's about how are we going to remember this game? What's going to be left behind when this game's over? And for many of us now, we're finding that there's overtime as part of the game. Mm-hmm. Why? Because things didn't might not have gone the way we wanted to earlier in the game. We didn't get to where we wanted to be, but that's okay. We've got an overtime left which kind of gives us that extra time in order to get to where we want to be. Okay, and if I'm 40 points behind at the end of the third quarter, my uh, uh, there's a lot of risk I'm not going to win this there, game. So. There is a lot of Perfect. risk that you're not going to win the game, and sometimes people will do some very, I'll say silly for lack of a better word, yep. things in order to mitigate the risk that is, in fact, creating even bigger uh, risk models than than the ones they've had in place. Yeah, the Hail Mary passes while the clock is running. Exactly right. Now, a good, good, good analogy. I'm glad we covered that one before the Super Bowl. A good reminder that that is coming up here in, in the Phoenix area. Let's remind our listeners how they contact you, learn more about the book. Uh, the website again? The website is www.richisastateofmind.com. Mm-hmm. And email, you can reach me at robert at 
richesestateofmind.com, or if you go to the website under the Contact Me button, you can drop me a note there, and I will do my best to respond. Excellent. Now, we've covered a lot of aspects of Rich being a state of mind today. Are there some key ones you'd like to add or emphasize, uh, especially since we couldn't possibly cover everything? The concept of money and emotion, Ron, I, I think is integral to most people's relationships with money. Money is a funny thing. It's pieces of paper with ink on it. I don't know what's so emotional about that, but we all know people in our lives that money either rules their lives. You, you made the comment earlier about, uh, about money and our relationship to it. One of the lines, and I use this in the book, is that money is a great slave. It's a lousy master. Mm-hmm. And it, it's simply just another wording of, of what you were talking quote, about exactly. earlier. Mm-hmm. It can do some wonderful things for us. But if we start seeing money as the pursuit of everything we do, then we're going to be disappointed by what it does for us. And understanding our relationship with it and the fact that money on its own does nothing for us. It's what that money will allow us to experience and do is where all the fun part comes in. And if you can keep your eye focused on that rather than the the mutual fund balance statement or your bank balance statement, it's not that number. It's about your life that you get to have because of that number. Well said. Good summary. It was a pleasure to honor, uh, to have you on as our guest, Robert, and I hope you'll join us again and to uh, help our listeners both stay motivated, to keep them on this financial journey, journey to the Holy Grail, excuse me. And uh, more importantly, it sounds like one of the topics we should be covering is some of those uh, legal aspects that we also don't want to forget about because uh, the money we do accumulate could all evaporate into taxes if uh, we don't have some of those uh, legal documents uh, in, in, in place that uh, also protect us. So uh, good reminder on that as a topic. So I really appreciate it, Robert. Look forward to uh, having you back on again sometime. It's It's been a pleasure to have talked to you today, Ron. I've learned a few things myself, and I hope your listeners enjoyed the show. Can't ask for anything more. Absolutely. All right. And as I close here, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, if you're already well on your way to becoming wealthy or you've already achieved that holy grail, then Robert Jignac probably help you realize some good disciplines that you already developed and got you to where you are today. Now, if on the other hand, you're struggling to get on that proper path, you probably now realize that reading the book, the book he wrote, Rich is a State of Mind, might just be that Kairos moment that changes your life for the better. Now, we haven't talked about Kairos moments yet, or at least not in detail, but if you look that word up, it's spelled K-A-I-R-O-S, you'll get the idea. We all have them in our life. They may seem innocuous at first, and yet you later realize how profoundly that one event changed your future. Maybe that book will be that event. There are many other aspects covered in this book that we didn't have time to cover, like paying yourself, an attitude of gratitude, giving back, maybe turning off the TV would help reduce the number of wants and needs that marketers are trying to put into your buy list. Now, I hope you saw the relevance of the two quotes I shared at the intro and one we just talked about, the one from Edwin Edmund Burke. If we command our wealth, we shall be rich and free. If our wealth commands us, we are poor indeed. And, and, and Robert's terminology of the slave and the master. Money's a great slave, a terrible master. And let me repeat the one that uh, just makes uh, me think about Robert's book. It's the one from Voltaire. Common sense is not so common. And he's got a lot of great advice in there. Now, regular listeners of the Wealth DNA radio show also know that our objective is to help one million people become millionaires. I'm confident some of the investment fundamentals we discussed today will be helpful in your journey to become one of those millionaires. And remember, one of the best ways to increase your wealth is to tune into the show twice a month. We'll share the investment fundamentals, some great ideas, and help diversify and grow your portfolio, just like we did today. And when you reach that holy grail, then do what I do, help others to achieve the same. Many thanks to BI Solutions Corp. for sponsoring today's show. They're a residential real estate fund based in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area and have helped many investors to have income for life. The next Wealth DNA Radio Show will be the second Monday of February, February 9th, 9 a.m. Arizona time. Same place, same time. Our guest will be Kieran Sweeney, a 
truly international speaker and coach. Kieran will not only provide us some food for thought, he'll actually give us nutrition for our mind. If you just Google that phrase or, or Bing it or Yahoo it or Ask it or whatever the term is these days for searching nutrition for our mind or for your mind, uh, as usual, we provide the lineup of guests and topics on WealthDNA.us, and there you'll find the archive of past shows. If you have some comments, suggestions, questions on today's topic or others, or if you haven't received emails reminding you about the show, send an email to me, ron at WealthDNA.us. We'll keep you posted about future shows and events, happy investing, and reading a good novel like Rich is a State of Mind. You've been listening to Wealth DNA with Ron Naraki on Arizona Boomer Radio. Arizona Boomer Radio is produced by the Boomer and the Babe Incorporated and can be heard Monday through Friday. You can sign up for their online magazine at boomerandthebabe.com. To reach the Boomer and the Babe, email host at boomerandthebabe.com or friend them on facebook.com slash boomerandbabe. And on Blog Talk, you can friend them at blogtalkradio.com slash boomerandbabe. Follow their tweets at twitter.com slash boomerandbabe. Be sure to make the second half of your life the best half of your life. And remember, at 50, you're just getting started. <laughs>